Uh, well, good, uh, really good to see all of you here this evening. Um, and uh, if, you're, uh, if you're online and you're uh, headed towards the snow or someplace, we're glad to have you with us as well. Um, so, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm really glad to be with you guys this, this evening. Um, you guys know that I'm constantly struggling with physical things. And so, um, yeah, I had a bout with um, cranky back this week, and so I'm just glad to be able to be standing and walking, um, and uh, yeah, to, to be here with all of you um, this evening. So we're going to continue our series in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2 this evening. So before we begin, let's, uh, let us read the passage, and then uh, we will pray. Okay, so Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, um, uh, Mark writes this, And when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And being unable to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof over where he was. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the mat where the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and pick up your mat and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your mat, and go to your home. And he got up and immediately picked up the mat and went out before everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful to you for, uh, for your word and for how it shows us more of who you are, more of who your son is. And we pray that as we spend extensive time learning more about your son this evening, that you would be glorified as we, uh, are, as we are encouraged and as we, are, uh, as we, as we, as we look at Christ uh, with fresh eyes. We pray that, Lord, you would help us to uh, just... See him as you want us to see him, and so, so that we may worship him as you want us to worship him. Thank you, Father, for uh, this evening. We pray that you would be glorified through the preaching of your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, back in January 2001, a website was born. While anyone can build and launch their own websites anytime now, this particular website was significant because it helped people find information. Particularly, it helped many students who needed access to an encyclopedia for their research problems when they couldn't go to the library, and the encyclopedia websites at that time still charged a pretty significant fee to access their information. 
And with that major clue, I'm pretty sure you guys know what I'm referring to, which website I'm referring to. It's Wikipedia. Now, Wikipedia was so popular that it, that, um, it was referenced on the sitcom The Office. And one of the characters in The Office explained the value of Wikipedia, saying, Wikipedia is the best thing ever. Anyone in the world can write anything they want about any subject, so you know that you have the best possible information. While that is funny, we all know that many of our teachers told us that Wikipedia was not a valid resource uh, source for our, for our essays because of that very reason, right? that anyone could write anything about whatever they wanted, and it'll stand. Right? There are standards present on Wikipedia to make sure that it's not a complete mockery, but the problem of authority, of the, of the authority of the contributors, is something that still haunts Wikipedia. After all, we can't just let people go around saying whatever they want about anything. In Jesus' day, the ability to fact-check others in, in terms of what they were saying was extremely limited. However, it doesn't mean that people just listened and re received everything no problem. It doesn't mean that they were easily deceived. They eagerly listened to what other people had to say, but they were also very mindful of what was being said as well. And in our passage this evening, we see the first of many encounters between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel, as there were some who heard Jesus' teachings but still doubted who he was. And in this first encounter, we're going to see three evidences of Jesus' divinity that reminds us that he is worthy of worship. Three evidences of Jesus' divinity that remind us that he is worthy of worship. The first thing that we see, the first evidence that we see is that Jesus grants forgiveness. The second is that Jesus demonstrates omniscience. And the third is that Jesus heals the paralytic. And if I'm going too fast, don't worry, these major points will come up again. So if you don't get them all the first time, it's all right. So the first point that we're going to look at, the first evidence of Jesus' divinity that reminds us that he is worthy of worship is that Jesus grants forgiveness, verses 1 to 2. And when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. So the last time we saw Jesus in Mark, he had healed the man with leprosy and was attempting to continue to preach in the cities throughout the region of Galilee. However, Jesus was so popular that it was really difficult for him to publicly enter into any city because people were coming to him from everywhere. And Mark doesn't actually tell us how many days passed between Jesus preaching at all those cities in the region of Galilee and him returning to Capernaum. Right, we have a very general time frame here in terms of uh, several days afterwards. It could, it could have even been uh, a month um, uh, anyways, um, after this unspecified time period, Jesus returns home to Capernaum. Now, Jesus' family home was not in Capernaum, but Capernaum became his home base, uh, his base of operations, if you will, in his Galilean ministry. And it was very likely that he stayed in the home of Andrew and Peter 
when he was ministering in Galilee. Now, we don't know how Jesus was able to return home without people knowing right away because, as we've seen in the text, right, it was very hard for him to move uh, without people knowing where exactly he was. But he got there. Right? Mark's not interested in telling us how he got there. He just wants us to know that he got there. Right? And he got there, and people had no idea, at least initially. But eventually, word gets out, Jesus is back. Jesus is back. Let's go listen to Jesus. All right? And so everyone is coming in. They're crowding the house, and they've filled it out. Right? They filled out the entire house such that there was not even any room at the door of this home for people to try and listen. All right? And some of you know what that's like. Uh, you know, earlier in, in this quarter for our adult three Sunday school class, before they moved classrooms, right, if you wanted to listen to uh, what was being taught in that adult three class, and you showed up late, Lord forbid, but you showed up late, what happened? Right? You were outside the door trying to listen, straining to hear in the hallway. What we see here is that it was so crowded in the house, you couldn't even get to the door to listen, to try and strain to hear Jesus. And that's pretty amazing, isn't it? The people were so interested in hearing what Jesus had to say that they packed out this house. And they really, really wanted to hear what he had to say. Verse 34 says this, And they came, oh, sorry, um, yeah, so, and he was speaking the word to them, right? And so verse 3, uh, And they came. Who was they? We don't know yet, right? They came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men, and being unable to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof over where he was, and when they had dug an opening, they laid down the mat and where the paralytic was lying. Um, uh, sorry, they, laid, they let down the mat where the paralytic was lying. Now, while the majority of the people gathered in the house wanted to hear Jesus speak, they wanted to hear him teach the word, there were others there um, who had faith that Jesus could help them as well, that, they, that uh, he could heal them. Right? And in particular, we have our attention drawn to these four individuals carrying a paralytic on a mat, likely a cot or a, some sort of stretcher. And, and they're carrying their paralyzed friend on a mat, and they're trying to get to Jesus because they know if we can get our friend to Jesus, Jesus definitely can heal him. Right. Word has gone out. People know that Jesus rebuked the fever out of Peter's mother-in-law. They know that Jesus healed that leper by putting his hand on him and not without defiling himself. They've heard of all the different ways that, <clears throat> excuse me, that Jesus has healed people of their diseases, of their sicknesses. They've heard how he has cast out demons. And so they know if we can just get to Jesus, he can heal. However, we know just from that first description of, the, of how many people were there at the house that there is a tremendous problem. You can't get through the crowd to get to Jesus. There's no way to maneuver around. You can't say, excuse me, I'm trying to get through. I, I have a friend who needs to see Jesus. It was so packed in that there was no way that they could get their friend to Jesus. And they were super desperate. You might wonder, why were they desperate? Right, couldn't they wait till after Jesus was done teaching to bring their friend to Jesus? 
Right? He, he was paralyzed. It's not like he was bleeding out. Right? They, could, they could have waited till after the sermon was done, after the lectures were over. But they didn't. And we don't know exactly why they were so desperate. But what we do know is that their desperation led them to an act of faith. It led them to an act of faith. They were, they were confident that if they could just get their friend to Jesus, Jesus would be able to heal him. So they said, we have to do this. We've got to do this now. So because they were not able to get through the crowd, the only feasible way that they could get their friend to Jesus was up over the crowd. Right? You can't get through them, so let's get over them. And they went to the roof in the house. Now, homes in Jesus' day, next slide, please. Um, homes in Jesus' day were typically single stories with a roof that was accessible through an outside staircase. So uh, you can see some of the structures maybe had, you know, the, the triangle, triangle roof, but a lot of the, the homes at that time had flat roofs. And the flat roofs had, a, had wooden beams laid across it, and, and then on top of the wooden beams, they would put something called thatch. Uh, thatch would be uh, perhaps some, some uh, grain, some mud, um, and uh, twigs and straw, and they would put that uh, in a well. They would put that thatch over the wooden beams, and then on top of the thatch, they would put ceramic tiles. Right. So when we're t when we're saying that they went up to the roof, right, this roof isn't one of those. Well, I mean, most roofs aren't flimsy, right? But this was a pretty solid roof. There's a lot of layers that you had to get through in order to get through the roof. And it is in spite of this solid construction of the roof that these desperate friends figured out, okay, we remember seeing Jesus here, so let's, let's open up a hole here in the roof and let's bring our friend down. Right? And they make a hole big enough where they can bring their friend down. This is just a cross section, by the way. That's not an indication of, uh, this is not an illustration of the, the de-roofing of the house. But can you imagine that? Can you imagine that, what it would be like sitting or standing inside that house and you're straining to listen to Jesus? It's probably hot because it's the middle of the day and you got all these smelly, sticky people right next to you and <clears throat> you're trying to listen to Jesus through the crowd and then all of a sudden, <clears throat> the roof starts crumbling in. All right? you, you get hit with some, with some thatch and you're like, what is this sticky stuff on my face? What is going on here? Right? And, you just, and, and, and then the hole just gets wider and wider and wider. Right? That'd be really hard to concentrate. Right? If that happened right now, right, and we heard some beeping, some scraping, some roaring over our heads, you wouldn't be sitting here listening to me, would you? You'd be like, I'm out of here. I'm out, that, I'm out the escape hatch. I'm not, oh, sorry, the escape route. That's not a hatch. Um, you could try making that, but it wouldn't work. Anyways, right, but that would be so distracting. That would be so distracting. And, you know, we honestly have no idea whether Jesus stopped speaking the word and he was just, like, looking at it like everybody else and they're just like, what's going on up there? We have no idea whether that was happening. I just, you know, in my, in my sanctified imagination, just, I'm just imagining Jesus just being so holy that he doesn't care and he just keeps preaching. Right? And, and, and <clears throat> um, anyways, right, whether or not people were distracted is not Mark's point. Mark's point, Mark's desire is to highlight the faith, the faith of the paralyzed man, the faith of his friends, in that they tried so hard, so desperately to get to Jesus, and they finally break through, and they're able to do that. 
So, verse 5, Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. You see, faith that Jesus could heal a physical condition like paralysis alone was not the only faith present for that paralyzed man. There is a personal faith in Jesus to save him from sin as well. Now, for whatever reason, Mark does not record a verbalized expression of saving faith or confession of sins from this paralytic man. But Jesus' response to seeing the man who was lowered before him indicates that this man was repentant of his sins, which is why he grants him forgiveness of sins. Now, you might think, hold on, PR, you can't exactly say that. That's not really in the text. That's pretty speculative. And I would admit, it is kind of speculative. But here are a few things that are important for us to consider regarding Jesus telling this man, son, your sins are forgiven. First, we want to recognize that the common Jewish thought in that day was that if you were experiencing a serious illness... That illness was a result of God's disciplinary punishment for sin. That's exactly what Job's friends thought when they went to go comfort Job. And they were pretty useless in their counsel because they kept on saying, Job, Job, Job. God does not discipline people unless they've sinned. He wouldn't let this happen to you unless you've sinned. So stop saying you've not sinned. Confess your sin and you'll be fine. And Job kept on saying, I've done nothing. Right? But there was that thought, even early on. Right? In Job's, Job's time period was likely around the time period of Abraham. Right? And so early on, they, were, they had that thought, if you're sick, if you have an illness, if you have a deformity, it's because you've sinned or someone near you have sinned. And that's exactly what the disciples thought in John 9. When they saw a man born blind and they asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? However, notice that Jesus corrects that idea by putting the idea of this man's blindness into perspective. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. God sovereignly allowed this man to be born blind so that eventually he could be healed so that God could get the glory in his healing. Now, we're not going to go deep down that, uh, that, um, that trail in terms of why does God allow certain things to happen. That's not our point for this evening. If you would like to talk about it, we can at some other point. Right, but uh, let's return to how this relates to the paralytic. If he thought, right, if the paralytic thought that I must have sinned, which is why I've become paralyzed, he certainly wouldn't need any convincing or much convincing that he needed forgiveness of sin. He was already convinced in his own mind, I'm a sinner. That's why this happened to me. He would have recognized that his sins needed to be dealt with by God. So that's the first reason why, um, or first thing to consider in terms of um, perhaps uh, this is why Jesus said your sins are forgiven. Second, If Jesus was simply going around forgiving sins and the people he forgave did not believe in him and were not actually repentant, then the forgiveness that Jesus grants would 
kind of be subjective, right? I was like, oh, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. Uh, not you. Right? It'd be really subjective. Additionally, we could even say, Jesus, that's not fair. Jesus, you're practicing injustice. Because salvation has always been through faith. And so if you're just granting forgiveness to people just because, that's wrong. Our salvation has always been through faith. In Genesis 15, 6, we see Abraham. Right? Abraham believed Yahweh. And it was at that moment that Yahweh counted Abraham's belief to him as righteousness. Right? Abraham was righteous because of his belief that God granted him. And because of that, Abraham was considered righteous. Forgiveness and the transference of righteousness cannot happen without the saving faith that God graciously gives. And so by granting forgiveness, Jesus recognizes that this man wants forgiveness of sins and he graciously grants it. You see, the forgiveness of sins that Jesus grants the paralytic is a forgiveness that only God can give to believers on the basis of true faith in him. And that means that the act of forgiveness of sin is the exact same forgiveness that God showed to every single believer who believed in him before Christ died on the cross, or before Christ even came to this earth. And so in granting that similar, that same forgiveness to the paralytic, Jesus is making a definitive statement of divinity as he removes the guilt of sin from this man because of the faith that he saw in him. His friends had that faith too, right? But it was, it's always personal, right? Nobody else's faith can help save you. It's your own. And this claim to divinity is not lost on the people in the audience, as we're going to see next in the next evidence for Jesus' divinity, which is that Jesus demonstrates omniscience. Jesus demonstrates omniscience. Verse 6 and 7. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone. So we had mentioned before that there were a lot of people in the crowd who wanted to hear Jesus speak the word to them. They believed the message that Jesus was preaching, but there were some people who were in attendance who just wanted to catch this rising star. They wanted to hear this popular preacher. Uh, as, as we've learned from the first chapter of Mark, right? Jesus' popularity, it skyrocketed because he thought authoritatively from God's word in a way that was different from the religious leaders. He wasn't quoting other rabbis and saying, Rabbi, someone says this, and Rabbi, someone says this. He said, no, but I tell you this, right? He went to the word. He explained the word. He didn't need the rabbis to help explain the word. He did it in a very authoritative way. And he, he helped people see, whoa, this is what the Word of God says. This is what the Word of God means. And not only did he do that, but he also demonstrated that he could heal people from their illnesses, from their diseases, and that he, could, he had authority over the demons, over the supernatural. And so naturally, right, naturally, there would be curiosity about such a person. And there would be people who would come 
from all over and they would say, I have to check out this Jesus for myself. Is he who he says he is? What is this thing that he does? I want to see with my own eyes the miracles that I've heard of. Right? And in a sense, our society continues to do this. Right? And the most visible way that this happens is actually through sports. So if you're not a sports fan, super sorry, this illustration will probably be somewhat confusing. But in, in sports, right, we're always looking for the next big thing, right? The next big thing. Who is going to be the next GOAT, greatest of all time, all right? Following Michael Jordan's greatness. You guys know Michael Jordan. If you don't, you at least know him about his shoes, right? So basketball fans were wondering who the next MJ was going to be. And some, some people said, the next MJ is going to be Kobe. Right? Kobe's the next MJ. He's the next, next one. But then LeBron got into the league. And everyone who loved basketball wanted to see with their own eyes whether this one that they call the chosen one, the king, was going to be the next MJ. They wanted to see with their own eyes. Is it true? Is it true? And in a very similar way, this is kind of what was happening. Are you who you say you are? These things that I've heard, they, they sound too good to be true. I want to see this for myself. And so these religious leaders in attendance, they were coming from all over and they wanted to see who Jesus was and whether he could actually do the things that they, they've heard about him. Which is why they were troubled by what they heard. Jesus, Jesus said to this paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. You can't say that. You can't say that, Jesus. I don't know who you are, but you can't say that. You see, these men who are listening, they're identified to us as scribes. The scribes are a particular type of Pharisee. The Pharisees as a whole, as a, as a, as a group, were uh, people who were devoted to God. They wanted to hold to legalistic traditions and rituals because they believed if we follow these legalistic traditions and rituals, we'll please God. We'll avoid the sin that put us into the exile in the first place. Right, so they were thinking, what we need is a return to God, and if we do that, we won't get punished anymore. And so, uh, that's who the Pharisees were as a whole. They, they wanted to be set apart. They didn't want to continue in the sins that uh, their predecessors um, were guilty of. They wanted to learn their lesson from that. So in a sense, really, the Pharisees were just trying to be really faithful Jews, right? faithful worshipers of Yahweh. That's what they were trying to do. They knew their stuff. They just got really carried away in how they applied it uh, in their lives and putting things on people that weren't in the text. Now, within that large group of Pharisees, there was a particular sect of people called the scribes or the lawyers. And these people were the professional theologians and Old Testament scholars. They knew their stuff. And when they heard Jesus say, son, your sins are forgiven, they're like, uh-uh, you can't say that. Only God can forgive sins, and you are not God. Notice, however, they didn't say that out loud. They didn't say it out loud. Mark tells us that they were sitting in the house, and all of them at the same time were reasoning in their hearts the same thing. That this Jesus, 
just committed blasphemy by equating himself to God by granting forgiveness to this paralytic. And by the way, this particular form of blasphemy always carried with it a death sentence. If you make yourself out to be God, you die. So this is what they're thinking. This is what's in their hearts. They've not said a word, though. Right? If anything, they probably were looking at Jesus when he said that, and, they're just like, and they just made this face like, what? Right? They didn't say anything. Or, you know, I mean, I verbalized it, right? but that's what their face would be. Right? It's like, what? What are, you, what are you saying? Forgive them of their sins. <clears throat> so they've not said anything, and yet Jesus demonstrates that he's more than a normal man in verse 8 as we read this immediately. So they just thought this, the scribes just thought this, and immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? You see, despite the fact that the scribes never verbalized their objection, God allowed Jesus to know what was in the heart of the scribes. When Jesus came to this earth, When he became a human, he voluntarily gave up the right to use his divine attributes. And basically, whatever attributes that he used to be able to use freely, he gave those rights up. He allowed God, the Father, to give him the ability to use these things from time to time. In Philippians 2, 5 through 7, Paul is trying to get us to think about humbling ourselves And he points us to the example of Jesus, and he says this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. So what we see in Philippians 2, 5-7, is that though Jesus was truly God, he emptied himself. He voluntarily laid aside his ability to use these divine attributes so that he could become like us, so he could be a man, a humble man. And so, so, so that means that one of these attributes that he laid aside, that you know, he could lay aside without not being God, was his omniscience, his ability to know everything. Right? And we, we can even see in the Gospels that as he was growing up, he learned. He was asking questions to the religious leaders, and he was learning. He learned wisdom. He learned obedience. All right. So he gave up that omniscience, his ability to be all-knowing. And yet, and yet, in this instance, in this instance, he is able to know what is in their hearts. In Jeremiah 17:10, God says this: I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the result of his deeds. God alone knows what is in the heart of man. However, in this particular instance, God the Father allows Jesus to know what is in the heart of those scribes so that they could see that Jesus isn't just some guy. He's not just a guy who is out there gathering a following for himself with speeches and supposed miracles. He was more than that. He was more than that. And in addressing their objections, though they did not verbalize it, Jesus reveals that he was more than a mere man. 
And in granting forgiveness, Jesus certainly demonstrated that he thought of himself as equal to God. But in knowing their thoughts and addressing it before they even said it, Jesus further makes the case that he is God because he knows exactly what they were thinking. That would be really jarring, wouldn't it? To meet somebody, to make your evaluation of them in your own mind. You haven't said a word. And they look at you and they say to you, I know exactly what you're thinking about me right now. And I'd be like, oh, you do? Like, what do you think I'm thinking right now? Right? Uh, it'd be really jarring for someone to say that to us, right? And if they tell us exactly what we're thinking, word for word, we'd be pretty freaked out, right? He's like, how do you know what's going on in my mind? But you see, Jesus doesn't just say, I know what you're thinking, and then kind of guesses, lucky guess right, you know, gets, gets it right. He knows what they're thinking, and then he hits it right on the head, and he addresses the thing that they're thinking, which is way more complex. And he backs it up, and he says in verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your mat and walk. He knows their specific objection, and he counters that specific objection. When Jesus told the paralytic that your sins are forgiven, it's really doubtful that Jesus, looking at the paralytic, says to him, your sins are forgiven, and then he's just like scanning the crowd like, yeah, you going to react to this? You going to react to this? No. He's looking at the paralytic. He's focusing on the paralytic. And so, he knew in that moment that the objections, or, or what, the, what those objections were, and then he poses, them, uh, poses, poses a question to them about what's easier. Right? What's easier? You think about it, right? It's kind of a, it's a little bit of a, of a mind twister. What is easier? To say to someone, your sins are forgiven, or to tell them, get up and walk when they're paralyzed? What's easier? Well, they're both not easy, right? They're both not easy. Um, we'll get to that in, in a moment. But Jesus, in directly challenging their objections and saying, I can do this, even though you think I can't, right, really reveals he knows more of what's going on in their minds than any normal person should be able to do. Right? And that helps us see that, there is, uh, that, that he is divine. That he is divine. And that brings us to the third evidence of Jesus' divinity, which is that Jesus heals the paralytic. Jesus heals the paralytic. So again, he says, um, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, and then we'll get to what else he says later. Um, So Jesus, he's presenting these two options to the objectors in the crowd, right? And he was by no means saying that healing a person of paralysis is way easier than forgiving them of their sins, right? He's not making that comparison because both tasks are equally impossible for a man to do, right? For a normal person to do, I can't, you know, I can't, you can't say to somebody who's paralyzed, oh, just get up out of your wheelchair. You're fine, right? That'd be really insensitive. That'd be really rude. Don't ever say that to anybody, (laughs) okay? Don't do that. Besides, you'd also be proven false because they're not going to get out 
unless this is like some Benny Hinn healing thing and uh, they weren't paralyzed to begin with. And to say to someone, your sins have been forgiven, right, that's really hard to prove. Right? How, how can we know that what you just said was true? Nobody can back it up. Nobody can, uh, nobody can examine it. Nobody can prove it. Right? And Jesus, he lets these objectors know, essentially, I understand that you doubt my ability to forgive sins. I understand that you don't think I have the authority to do this for people. Not only do I have the authority to forgive sins, but I can prove it by showing you something that you can see with your eyes. I can heal this man of his paralysis. In addition to forgiving him of his sins. And for that reason, he turns to the paralytic and he says, I, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. Remember, this man was truly paralyzed. His friends brought him to Jesus on a mat in the hopes that Jesus would heal him. This is not some athlete pretending he's hurt so that he can go to the bathroom or an athlete who is pretending that he's hurt so that he can get his team an extra timeout when there are no more timeouts. This is a real thing. This is real paralysis. And yet, the amazing power of Jesus is on, on full display as he heals this man without touching him or even pronouncing to this man, I heal you. You're healed. Or he simply just tells this man, get up. Pick up your mat. Go home. All right? Seconds ago, that would have been impossible. Seconds ago, that would have been impossible. And now, this man is fully functioning. There was no need for PT. There was no need for rest. There was simply instantaneous healing before the crowds. And the crowd sees it. And the crowd sees it. Verse 12 says this, And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. You see, Jesus' healing was, uh, of this man was not expected. It was truly not expected. Everyone in attendance, they were mind-blown, which is why they're just super amazed and they're glorifying God. Even that word amazed in the Greek is a word, in a sense, of, of fear, of awe. Like, whoa, what did we just see? You see, they recognize the enormity of what they just saw with their eyes. They were not aware of the inner dialogue of the scribes like we are. But they understood that no one who is paralyzed can, in an instant, get up, pick up the mat that they came in, and go home. But that's what Jesus did with this paralyzed man. He forgave him of his sins and he healed him. Now, don't let the reason why Jesus healed the paralytic get lost for you. Jesus healed this man so that the objectors in the crowd could see that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, right? That's what he says. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he says, I tell you, get up and walk. You see, if Jesus can back up his statement of forgiveness of sin by doing something that's way harder to prove in that instant, right? Healing a paralyzed person. Then logically, when he says, son, your sins are forgiven, he must have forgiven him of his sins. Right? That's, 
the conclusion that he's trying to get them to draw. And don't forget either that this is not a one-off demonstration of his ability to heal either. Right? He's not going around selecting particular people, trying to figure out who he can heal in, in, a, in an instant to just prove that he has magical powers. That's not what Jesus is doing. He is consistently doing this in the early part of his ministry, which is why the crowds were there. So Jesus has demonstrated not only through his words, but through his deeds that he has divine authority. In healing the paralytic, Jesus wants the people to know that he is the Messiah, the promised son of man spoken of in Daniel 7, to whom God will give dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Sadly, though, there were many people who were amazed in giving God glory that day. And yet that amazement did not translate to saving faith. You see, throughout Jesus' life, Jesus clearly demonstrated his authority over nature, over illness, over disease, over the spiritual world, and even over sin itself. And there were still many people like the religious leaders who saw with their eyes what Jesus did. And they said, no, he didn't do that. You're a fake. You're a fraud. You do this through the power of the devil. You're not the Messiah. There were a lot of people who looked at Jesus, didn't believe a word that he said. They were amazed by what he did, but they were just like, no, you can't be. You can't be the Messiah. Which is why it's not surprising that when Jesus was arrested and charged with sedition and was given the death sentence of crucifixion, that there were people who have seen him do all these things who said, yeah, crucify him, crucify him. They saw with their eyes, but they didn't believe in their hearts. If you're here this evening and you've heard of the wonders of who Christ is, and what he has done on your behalf. I beg you. Do not be like the people in the crowd. Who walked away amazed by what they saw. As if it was just like an amazing magic trick. But no more. We've seen throughout this evening. That Jesus is truly God. He really did come to save people from their sins. And if we believe in him. And we turn away from our sins. That salvation that forgiveness of sins can be yours this evening. This evening. And if you want to discuss that more, if you're still wrestling through that, feel free to come up to me or whoever brought you this evening. We'll, we can talk about that. Or you can talk to the people in your discussion groups. But what we've seen is that Jesus truly is divine. This evening we examine three evidences of Jesus' divinity that remind us that he is worthy of worship. We saw that Jesus grants forgiveness, that he has omniscience, and that he can heal a paralytic. Jesus wasn't some sort of sophisticated con man. He was not a magician. He is the son of God who came to this earth so that he might save his people from their sins. And though he came teaching the word of God and revealing his authority to people so that they might believe in him and receive forgiveness of their sins, not everyone believed. Not everyone believed. So I beg you, please consider, if you've not already, 
believing in Jesus Christ and repenting of your sins. Friends, the Bible is not Wikipedia. You can't just write anything you want about it or say whatever you want about it. Some people try to do that. They try to undermine the authority of the Bible and the authority of Jesus at times by casting doubt as to whether what, what we have in the scriptures is actually true, whether what we have is a combination of history and myth mixed together. But at the end of the day, we are all faced with the same choice like the scribes were. Will we continue to persist in our doubt that Jesus is God, or will we see through the hearing of God's word and, its and seeing its internal testimony of truth that salvation truly can be found in no other name? What will we see? What conclusion will we come to? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you've already placed your faith in him and repented of your sins, you believe that what he says is true, the question that remains for all of us this evening is, what should that belief in Christ lead us to do with our lives? And what should that belief in Christ lead us to do with our lives? What, what do we do? I'm going to leave the specifics for you to contemplate and discuss in your group discussions this evening. But my prayer for all of us is that we would grow, that we would desire to grow in our love for God, in our knowledge of him, in our knowledge of the scriptures and what they, what they reveal to us about God. And that as a result of that love for God, that we would be motivated to love his people. I love the church. And as a result of loving the church, we would desire to bring more into the church. That we would want to represent Christ in our families, in our workplaces, and in our social spaces. And that is my prayer for us. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful to you for your word. And for all these little evidences, but still concrete evidences, of Jesus' divinity, we're so grateful, Father, that you proved to us time and time again that Jesus was not a mere man, but that he is indeed the Son of God who has authority over all things. And if that is true, then that means that our sins really can be forgiven. And so for those of us who are here this evening who have not placed our faith in you, we pray that, Lord, you would impress upon them the enormity of your love for them, the desperate trouble that they are in because of the sins that they have committed, and yet, despite that desperate trouble, the way of escape that you provide through your own son's life, death, and resurrection. For those of us who are here who are believers, we pray, Lord, that you would grow us more and more in confidence in the scriptures, but also in a love for you, a love for you that motivates us, that, that pushes us to want to be the men and women that you call us to be so that we can really be the ambassadors that you want us to be to the world for Christ, so that the world may be convinced completely that there is salvation in no other name. We look forward, Lord, to that day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because it is in that day that all sin will be dealt with 
It'll be stripped away. It'll be removed from us. All the effects of the sin, uh, of sin on, on this life will be gone. And we can worship you as we were designed to, free of sin. And we look forward to that day, Lord. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, well, thank you so much for your attention this evening. I have a few questions, a few discussion questions for you to look at this evening. Um, the, the first one is this. How might the reminder of Jesus' divinity be an encouragement to us in our daily lives? That might seem like a cryptic question, and you don't know what to do with it, but that's intentional. I'm trying to get you to think about it. What does knowing that Jesus is divine like, what does that do for my life? How does it impact the way that I go about my day-to-day life? Should it impact the way that I go uh, about my day-to-day life? Leading question, yes, it should, but how? So anyways, ask why this question starts with the word how. Question number two, when we or someone we know may be tempted to doubt, how can Jesus's demonstration of his authority over all areas of life be a comfort? In other words, how can Jesus's divinity, right, the proofs of Jesus's divinity in the gospels, how can that be a comfort in doubt. It won't erase all doubt completely, but how can it be a comfort in doubt, uh, whether it's for our own selves or for people that we're trying to minister to? Um, and, the, and the reason why I point to that is because, well, the scriptures are internally consistent within themselves. There's no contradiction within it. So how can we use that lack of contradiction, which is good for us uh, to know, to comfort ourselves and to comfort others? So those are our discussion questions for this evening. I want to turn over the time to uh, our brother Chris to break us off.